Hello everyone and welcome to Dive Into Pride, a special series of interviews with LGBTQ plus leaders and allies whose work, efforts and advocacy has had a significant impact within the LGBT community, both here, both in Ireland and internationally. This episode I'm joined by David Gaw. David is, in 2019, made history by becoming the first openly gay referee of the Men's Senior All-Ireland Football Final. David, a Meave native, but I won't hold that against him, from Slane JA, has been refereeing since 2007 and in his time has refereed many top games, including the top four finals in the JA calendar, the Under-21 Football Championship, All-Ireland Minor Championship, All-Ireland Club Football Championship and, of course, the 2019 All-Ireland Final. David, in recent years, has become a strong spokesperson for the LGBT plus, LGBTQ plus uh, sporting community and was part of the JAA's historic um, inclusion in the 2019 Dublin Pride Parade, which was an absolute momentous occasion. Had Jay involved with that. David, welcome to the show. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. It's great to have you here today. I was just reading out there, you, you've had an incredible career as a referee, you know, having, you know, refed for the top finals in the JAA calendar. Do you know, it'd be great to know how you kind of transitioned from being like a player into becoming a referee yeah it's uh it's been a weird one rise from when i started um right up until the pinnacle i suppose in 2019 yeah. but i suppose at the age of 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 of, of 28 mm-hmm. um when i had realized that i was starting my journey about coming out um i decided to go into refereeing for a number of reasons um one i had done it um, for the previous number of years for coming to month school um, and refereed children's games as a way of making a bit of pocket money when I was in, in, in college. And yep. I found out that I really enjoyed it and liked it. The club situation number two at home was really bad. I was traveling mm-hmm. home from my job in Terenure and um, during the week, Tuesdays and Thursdays for training. And there might only be 10 at training. And I found that really difficult to be traveling yep. an hour down and an hour back, and I've talked about those those journeys, which I, I found mentally tiring, and um, because of what I was going through, mm-hmm. uh, and teammates were too used to sitting in watching Champions League by the fireside on a on a night in, you know, in March when I was traveling down in the bad weather. Yeah. And number three, I suppose it was an obvious way for me to get out of what I perceived to be an awkward situation with, mm-hmm. within the dressing room, and uh, it just. Um, lent itself to an easy pathway um, to, to get out of that at, at the yeah. time. So the transition happened for a number of, 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 of reasons that, that came together just at the right time. Yeah. And I started refereeing properly within Mead at the end of uh, 2007. Yeah. And what was kind of like the first um, proper match that you ref? Can you remember your very first inter-county match that you um, refereed? My first inter-county match would have been an O'Byrne Cup match. Um, between Offaly and UCD down in yeah. Road on a Wednesday night, and it was freezing cold. Um, and I remember uh, it had been uh, a long journey down, and it was a miserable game of football. And there was an assessor there. There were assessors at the time yeah. um, from Loud, and I got a brilliant assessment. And it just kind of made me feel that this is something that I could do. If I could do so well at, at an inter-county match so early yeah. on, um, that it was something I should stick at and it didn't take long but in a year I was on the, the national panel um, refereeing my, my first National League game 
which was a daunting experience. Most referees start off at Division 4, Division 3, mm -hmm. but obviously Croke Park heard that there was a bit of potential in me, and they put me into a Division 2 game between um, Westmead and um, Galway. And oh, good for my linesman, I had Joe McQuillan, um, yeah. who had refereed the previous year's All-Ireland. So I knew um, I was under a little bit of pressure there, and <laughs> I handled it well. Yeah. Because the following the following uh, year, I was put onto the national elite panel in 2013. I have uh, 35 championship matches now under my belt, which which is quite a lot for someone who's only 36 years of age. Yeah, definitely. And you know, ref and Crow Park. You know, I, I imagine it's because it's it's a much bigger pitch, and you're wa even kind of walking out and seeing like the stadium kind of open up in front of you. Because I always you always hear athletes and sports people say when you walk into Crow Park or something very when you walk onto the pitch because of the scale and also the history of that stadium what was it like walking out into that and kind of refing your first match there oh it was absolutely incredible I, I think my first match there was an All-Ireland minor football championship quarter final I think Russ Common might have been playing in it I'm not 100% sure yeah. um, but uh, it was a fantastic time the stadium was empty so it's you know there are not many people come in for the minor matches yeah and i remember walking out beforehand probably an hour an hour and 15 minutes before throw in and just looking around and thinking oh my god this is huge <laughs> um it's on a scale uh, uh, like you, you have to travel to specific venues in europe to find um um stadium like this i think it's the fourth biggest in europe uh, yeah. san siro maybe wembley i don't know whether uh, the new camp or the Bernabeu, but that's that's the scale you're talking on. Yeah, uh, and it's it's just a magnificent feeling walking out uh, and seeing it. But even more so on our Ireland final day, just in those ten to fifteen seconds before you throw up the ball, where yeah. there's a full house, eighty-two and a half thousand people, and just the noise level and the volume. It's a wonderful experience, and not something that many people get to get to experience in the middle of the field. Do you ever get nervous where you rep like a really big game? Like you know this is a super big game. Do you ever do you ever be in the back of your head like don't mess us up, don't mess up because you know there's some pressure on you? Do you ever get that at all? Yeah, definitely. And 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 it's a good thing because if I'm nervous, yeah. it means it matters to me. Like this 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 really needs to go well, you know? And um uh provincial finals, obviously, um big provincial finals in particular, like the Ulster final in Clonus, yeah. there's there's nothing like that. The Leinster final, um uh, isn't like that. Um, maybe if you get a Mayo Galway game in Salt Hill or a Cork Kerry game in 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 Killarney, they, but I just feel Ulster final days for me are, are are special days. The most nervous I think I've been was um, the Dublin Cork game actually this year mm -hmm. in the Championship um, uh, because it was the first time I had refereed in Crow Park in mm -hmm. almost a year. Um, I knew it was the first time I had refereed Dublin since. Uh, uh, 2016 so that was a three-year gap there as well yeah. in, in the championship and I just knew there was huge pressure on me to get this right because the potential of of getting an All-Ireland final or being appointed to one was there for me um, you know if, if if I performed well in that match. Yeah I like that you put the nod to the Ulster, Ulster final <laughs> football is um, definitely the best football in the country it's the most well well possible I would probably say very definitely but I do think it's um, definitely the most competitive the most competitive of all their provinces. I might be a bit biased, but then maybe not. I think the first time I met you, you were actually doing a panel for the Union Cup, and you couldn't attend Union Cup because you were refing a Denny Gold match at the at that weekend. And I actually couldn't because I was playing rugby at the time. 
And I remember saying to you when I met you, be, be sure now to be kind to Donegal. And you're very good to us and we won the match. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> I remember that day because uh, I had to go to Slane that day and it was actually the same day as the Slane concert. Mm. Um, and, and obviously I'm from Slane and I yeah. had to pick up my umpires there. And there was such hassle trying to get out to DCU to the Union Cup, get down to Slane in time before they close <laughs> the roads and get up to uh, Breffney Park because the match between Donegal and Tyrone was yeah. on that afternoon. And then the panic again to get back in to Slane before the concert finished, before the crowd started coming out. So that was a hectic day, yeah. Especially a Donegal-Tyrone game because that's a serious, that's like a serious match up in, up in Ulster, Donegal versus Tyrone. That is a high-pressure game. There'll be pressure coming all angles. I say there was loads of ones from Donegal and Tyrone trying to give you a nudge, be like, I should give them the odd yellow card there now. Uh, it was an, it's an intense rivalry, but one that I absolutely love being in the middle of. There's nothing yeah. like it. I'm asking now, chatting to like a ref. Have you ever like ref the team, kind of hoping someone does something so you can give them the second yellow card and send them off? Or you would you be very impartial altogether now? Oh, I'd be completely impartial. And I know that's the kind of answer you're expecting me to give. But if I was to look mm. at my own life and mm. how I struggled with fairness, equality, and impartiality growing up, um, just my perceptions of it, it was yeah. it's the one thing that I would hate for someone to say about me on a football field. So, yeah. you know, everyone gets a clean slate um, on the day of the game. I don't carry any grudges in. And, uh, you know, I referee every game as it's played out in front of me. And um, the best team, well, you'd hope that they, they end up winning. Oh, no, yeah, definitely, 100%. Like you mentioned there when you were on a break going up to Tyrone and Donegal that day, that was a hectic day. And you said you had the picker umpires up in Slane. So your four umpires that you usually have with you is your father, Eugene, your brother, Stephen, Uncle Terry, and Cousin Dean, it must be great to have that kind of trusted support with you on the sidelines as your linesman because you know you can always go to them and you can kind of trust what they're kind of saying. So that must be fantastic to have that kind of support system with you as a ref, especially on those kind of bigger game days that you can rely on them. Yeah, people don't often think about the difficult dynamic that there is with, with umpires and uh, mm. some people would hate to have their family with them. Some people would love to have them. I have a particularly close family. Yeah. Um, and always have had. We all live close to one another at home in Slane. Um, so it's easy for us to meet up um, midweek or have a chat about the match. We're always in contact with one another. But if you think that I have to sit in the car uh, for three hours on a journey to Bally Buffet with the four of those, if I had re um, umpires maybe from the parish or from different clubs, you're trying to create conversation to keep everyone tuned in, motivated. Um, that they don't switch off and it can be a difficult dynamic but with the four four lads and myself we know each other's lives so well that there are so much other and many things to talk about apart from from football and the journey just passes so much quicker there's yeah. also the fact that because we know each other so well there's a good bit of banter in the car yeah. a good bit of slagging and it just makes it an awful lot easier for me and they put me at ease mm. but then when you get to the the grounds they always put me first. As far as they're concerned, I'm the most important person there on that day. They don't care who's playing. So I'm completely looked after. I don't need for anything. They have everything brought with them and, and they, they, they make sure that I, 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 I am completely relaxed and at ease going out onto the field. But also, they know how to speak to me during the game. They know mm -hmm. how to answer me. And at times, if they can see me losing my concentration, getting frustrated maybe saying something I shouldn't have said, they will come in over the microphone and they will say, David, cop on. Or David, just <laughs> relax now, take a breath. Or my father will pull me to the side at halftime 
you know, and there'll be a quiet word. So yeah. it, if they see things getting out of control for me, they know how to pull me back in. And mm. sometimes umpires mightn't feel in a comfortable enough position to do that for a referee. But because it's family, they yeah. know how to deal with me. Oh, 100%. I had to mention now when we were, when we were chatting about the JA. In 2019, you repped an All-Ireland Final. Now, like, all, all men senior All-Ireland Final. Now, that must be a fantastic, you know, achievement as a ref. It must be like the dream game to referee. Can you tell us, can you tell us a little bit about when you found out that you were going to be ref in the final and how that felt when you'd realised, I'm going to be doing this? Yeah, so um, I found out... Um, a little bit earlier than I was supposed to find out because um, Eamon Fitzmaurice had made a comment on a podcast um, with the Irish Examiner about me, me living in Dublin. And a lot of pressure came on um, Croke Park um, to announce who the referee was going to be in advance of the actual announcement date, which is always usually the day after the All-Ireland Hurling Final. Um, but I, I found out a little bit earlier, they rang me, because they didn't want me to feel under any pressure or be anxious about it. And I was in Slane at the time. I, was, I had gone down to visit my grandmother, um, my yeah. uncle, my cousins, my brothers had all gone on a family holiday to Lanzarote. And I had decided not to go because I wanted to stay in peak fitness in case I was appointed for, for the final. So I yeah. was actually in the car um, when Donald Smith rang me from Croke Park. And it was extremely emotional because I had gone through maybe 24 to 48 hours of panic initially, uh, anxiety, and then worry about, you know, was this comment going to potentially cause me uh, not to be allowed referee in an All-Ireland yeah. final? And that was something that I had worked really hard for for a number of years. I had felt um, unlucky in 2015 because I got the minor final, mm -hmm. really unlucky in 2016 because... Um, I ended up doing the semi-final. Again, mm. in 2017, I was in line for it because the semi-final replay. 2018, um, uh, it was just a difficult year for me and, 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 and I, I didn't get it. So I knew mm -hmm. in 2019 it was my year and it was the game I wanted. It was that Dublin-Kerry game. Oh. It was five years of, 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 of history for Dublin. So uh, it was an extremely emotional occasion and, and, and my grandmother, who was so proud to have five of her um, relations, you know, two sons and three grandchildren on, on, on the pitch. Um, it was just a wonderful feeling that day. And um, the phone calls, the text messages um, uh, on social media and from friends and, and, and family that poured in over the following 48 hours. It, it's just a really lovely experience. Yeah, it, I've tried to explain it the same way as when a player wins their All-Ireland, when that final whistle goes. The outpouring of emotion because they've they've reached the pinnacle of 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 their 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 year. For me, it's when I get the phone call. I know I'm 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 appointed to the final, so that's yeah. the outpouring of emotion. Unfortunately for me, I still have a performance to put in afterwards. It's yeah. it's, it's the reverse to the players. Um, but it's 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 that it's that initial phone call when you get it, because sometimes you get the opposite phone call. And you know you're waiting for the phone call to come in on that Monday morning mm -hmm. and the phone is picked up and it's the match officials manager in Croke Park and it's, good morning, David, um, just to let you know you've been appointed to stand by for the All-Ireland final this year and your just heart sinks because you know, yeah. well, I'm one step closer or one step away again this year. So it was nice after maybe four years of not getting it to finally get it. 
That's brilliant. And what's like, you mentioned there, like the preparation. What preparations involved between that phone call and then the All-Ireland final? Well, obviously, because of the hype around this year's, this year's final, the first mm. thing I was advised to do was to take social media off my phone. So mm-hmm. the Twitter and the Instagram went. Um, I kept the US Open app because I lo- loved the tennis and I wanted to keep on top of, of, of what was happening in, in Flushing Meadows. Um, mm-hmm. The umpires and myself um, and the uh, linesmen, Fort Official, and the referees committee met in Abbottstown mm-hmm. um, the week before the match. We went through um, match day protocols, um, and, and, and they are incredible, down to the minute you leave the dressing room to the minute you get the team sheets to you know when the president is coming out to how long the parade takes to when the national it's just the presentation of the ball and there's someone in your ear for a full I think it was 27 minutes telling you stand here be there do this Uh, and it's quite it's quite off-putting but um because we were so well versed in it a couple of weeks beforehand we knew what to expect um, and then you sit down with your, your, your team of officials at that. We do a training session in Abbottstown, uh, something light, stretching and, and, and running. Um, and we come in and we sit down, we have our meal, we talk about the match, what we want, what, what I'm expecting, how I expect to, 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 to talk to the match officials, what type of answers I want, what type mm-hmm. of language they're to use. Um, and then we leave it. We don't see one another until the Saturday night before the All-Ireland Final, where we meet in, for a meal in the Castlenock Country Club Hotel. Mm. Um, all the match officials for the minor final, senior final, and their partners um, go there. So it's quite a large number. Um, it's 32 there for dinner. And we go back to bed, get up the next morning, have our breakfast, um, go for a walk, uh, try and calm down a little bit. The nerves can be a little bit um, uh, on edge at that stage. Um, around 12 o'clock, you get a taxi van into Croke Park um, and the wives and partners come, come afterwards um, and it's game mode it's game yeah. mode you, you go in you get wired up um, you know you, you meet the, the other match official managers from Croke Park and um, they try and keep you calm and at ease but at, I think it was at three minutes past three it was out of the dressing room and onto the pitch yeah and it was a great game, actually, because I know the first, because that All-Ireland Final went to, like, a replay, but I was actually at the game. I managed to get, I managed as a neutral to get tickets to an All-Ireland Final, Dublin versus Kerry, so you imagine it was absolute, but it was, it was, it was Whopper. So you were kept on your feet for that entire match, because it was very close. So how did you find actually ref in that match? I was completely at ease. Um, oh, I really? had gone to, yeah, to, to, to speak to our sports counsellor on the week beforehand, right. and he had left me feeling... Um, after an hour's conversation that there was no other referee that was going to perform as well as me on the day, that this game had been made for me, that the whole year was geared towards this, that the, the Late Late Show uh, appearance, the, the walking in pride, everything mm-hmm. had built itself up to build David Goff towards um, this All-Ireland final. And I was so calm and in control of my thought processes um, my, my, my language, um, how I spoke to the players. I was completely at ease and it just yeah. led itself to a fantastic game of football that just flowed so easily and was probably one of the best mm-hmm. games of football we've seen in, in a long time. Yeah, it was great. And I think seeing Dublin and Kerry, as a neutral, I was like, I don't really know which one I want to see one there from Donegal, Dublin versus Kerry. You're kind of like, it's like the, which is the lesser two evils here now? But it was, <laughs> it was a great game to watch. Good seats. It was a great atmosphere there because it was so close no and, and, and there was times you know what way it was going to go you thought one team 
pulled away, but it was a very, very good game. But in the build-up to that, like Eamon Fitzmaurice comments about the fact that you're living in Dublin, that you might be showing favouritism towards Dublin. And personally, I live in Dublin. I would have thought that it would have been the exact opposite. You wouldn't want to be listening to the five-in-a-row chance, like dealing with yeah. that every year. So when you heard that sort of stuff, as a referee, are you used to hearing those sort of comments, like supporters making those sort of like statements before matches about ref selection? Not, no, I wouldn't say I'm used to it. Um, and I, I would certainly say in the venues I referee in, you definitely hear, don't, don't hear supporters. You have an earpiece in one ear. It's just mm. background noise. Um, I tend not to look at what people say about me on, on, on social media, but mm. that was such a high-profile um comment from yeah. a very well respected manager um, who had unfortunately in 2016 and 2017 fallen in All-Ireland semi-finals that I had refereed and oh. I had, I've held my hands up in 2016 and said yes I did make a mistake but I didn't make it on purpose and I didn't make it because I live in Dublin and have an allegiance to Dublin football I mean I'm from Mead I grew yeah. up in the 90s you know when that rivalry was to get, you're there I've been yeah. to all the Mead Dublin games you know I play my football in Mead my friends play football for me, and mm. I'm a Mead supporter, and I meet, wear my Mead jersey very proudly. So it just felt a, a little bit uncomfortable at first. But then I listened back, actually, to the podcast, and I wanted to hear you know, mm-hmm. how he said it. And I think for anyone that listened back to the podcast, it was possibly you know, a reasonable response um, to a, a question. From his point of view... But I think the media didn't play anything else afterwards. It was just that David Goff should not referee the final. And that was it. That was the only clip they, they, they took. Um, yeah. So it was blown out of all proportion. I think it was a slow news week. There wasn't much coming. Peter Keane is a very quiet man, keeps his cards close to his chest. Everybody knows what Jim Gavin is like in, in, in the media. He's an absolute mm-hmm. gentleman. But again, you know, not much gets out into the media. So it was an easy out for the media to talk about the appointment of the referee. And in fairness to Croke Park, they cut it short very quick. They mm-hmm. made the announcement the following, within 48 hours. And, yeah. Um, it just put it to bed uh, very quickly. No, definitely. No, I think it was, a, it, was a, it, was, it was a great game and well ref, so well done to you there because it was actually added stuff and it was a fantastic game. Um, so... Look, like I think what was so significant about even ref that game was it was the first time you know an openly gay official refereed an All Ireland final, and now I think that in itself was a very significant moment for the LGBTQ community in Ireland, especially in an institution such as the JAA, which is so, which is such a massive institution across the country. It's in every village, and in itself, it is a religion. Um, coming from a JAA family myself, I'm well aware. One of my father, my brothers, it's it's every second word is football. Um, so <laughs> well aware of it. But um, you know, David, you know, as a player, kind of growing up, and then from a, a JAA club, like what was the coming out journey for you like, and that kind of discovery in terms of your own um, sexual orientation? I suppose I made it difficult on myself, mm. um, and I spent a long time reflecting um, on my situation in life wondering was this what I wanted to do, Um, suppressing the feelings uh, and emotions first of all before they just got to a stage where I knew um, that this needed to change uh, Mm -hmm. for me to live live a full life as a a human being. And um, I I learned a lot about myself during that time, um, but I also learned a lot about my friends and and, um, I would say now that I was 
extremely disappointed with myself after I came out to the lads in the football club because I didn't give them the opportunity to support me at any stage. There was just this fear that they were going to turn around and not want to um, have me on the team anymore or engage with me, that I was going mm -hmm. to be seen as, as someone different. And, and, and that was a, a very irrational fear because what happened was, well, really nothing. There was just like, that's grand. Some of the lads said, Joshua, oh, we've always known. And I was like, what? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, um, but I, I can laugh over that now. Yeah. But they just didn't treat me any differently. And mm -hmm. uh, it was like, that's grand. If that's all you're worried about, like, we're not worried about that. Yeah. Um, so you get all these fears and, 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 and thoughts in your own head because you're doing so much reflecting, you overthink on it. Now, I'm not saying every person in my situation should tell their GA team because maybe mm -hmm. they wouldn't have got the support from their teammates. But yeah. in my particular case, all my teammates were fine. Um, mm -hmm. I've had no other no, no issues. And it, it actually lent itself to other members of the team coming out in years subsequently. And it's just Brilliant. kind of now an acceptable thing in the club. It's very open and uh, I'm not the only one anymore. And um, it's, it, it's great to see that people actually feel comfortable in, yeah. in, in coming out in, in my GA club. But I've also been contacted by so many others around the country who've gone on similar journeys and, and now feel empowered to, to, to come out within their own clubs as well. And that's fantastic. And I think you mentioned there that fear. And I suppose, like I know myself coming from a rural area, and I suppose anyone who comes from like rural Ireland from more of those kind of like very jail communities, it is quite difficult. And there is that kind of fear about coming out. So when you were kind of, when that, you kind of had that kind of fear or maybe anxiety about coming out, what, what was kind of driving that fear? And kind of what made you kind of decide to actually take that leap and actually tell people? Um, the f driving of the fear, I suppose, was because I didn't know anyone else out in the GAA. And, and mm. just um, the kind of comments that I would hear in the dressing room, um, and, and I heard them from the whole way up from secondary school um, into the club, the club, club dressing room, and maybe out on nights out or in the pub, and comments were passed, and, and lads would just say, you know, they're having the crack, and they're having the banter, and they didn't mean anything by it. Yeah. And, and, and I understand their mindset in saying that, but they never understood my mindset in, 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 in thinking that that was really damaging to me because yeah. I was afraid to come out because of the language you were using and the way you were using it. It really impacted upon me. So that was driving the fear the, the, the whole time. What made the huge change for me was uh, I was sitting in my classroom um, at the end of January uh, 2011, and I'd gotten to the point where I just couldn't deal with this anymore. I knew something needed to change. And um, a child I was teaching at the time in, in, in special needs um, wasn't in school that day, so I had 30 minutes. And I was, had been asked to read a, a, a verse at my aunt's wedding, but to find the verse myself. So it could be words of a song, it could be yeah. a poem, it could be a blessing, anything, a chapter, piece from a book. And I came across a poem called the Time, For the Time of a Necessary Decision by, by John O'Donoghue. Mm -hmm. And when I finished the poem, I was sitting in the classroom crying. There was tears streaming down my face. It was nearly half two on the Friday afternoon. And I knew then, you'd swear the poem was written exactly for my situation in life. Yeah. Um, I have a lovely framed um, piece of art in the house with the poem in it that a uh, uh, a friend of mine from Slane gave to me, lovely, ah, in, in rainbow colours. I'm looking at it at the moment. Yeah. And it, it was the catalyst to make me, me come out. And that was Friday evening. By Sunday evening, I told my, my family at home in Slane. And I've never looked back since. 
No, that's amazing. And, you know, I think that obviously clear, like, like those type of support systems, and I think you obviously, when you came out to your um, to the club and the fact that that support was there was amazing. But I think you, you kind of touched on something there about within, like, the dressing rooms and, like, that kind of, the kind of the, the use of some language. And I know, like, there's been, like, studies and reports done. Actually, one report last year that was published in, in Europe was that over, was surveyed over 5,000 people that said about 9 out of 10 said that they feel homophobia as a problem in sports. And then Harlequins Rugby Club um, said that 40% of the team had used some form of derogatory language in terms of LGBTQ community. Um, within the team recently and 70% said that they heard Tim teammates use similar remarks so it seems to consistently be like a thread just kind of the use of the language and do you find yourself even as like a referee or have you noticed yourself in clubs like you know you touched there over the years do you think that this is a problem within the GAA? Um, I, I honestly from my own experience and mm -hmm. I'm not saying this covers anyone I haven't seen homophobia in that that would need to be repeated tendencies yeah. or, or, you know, um, um, the kind of like bullying, yeah. um, uh, uh, you know, and it's never a homophobia has never cropped its head up personally when I've been in any situation yeah. um, within the GAA, certainly not face to face. Um, the derogatory remarks, yes, I hear them on, uh, on a regular basis. Um, take myself out of Croke Park, put myself in a club ground in Mead. Mm -hmm. I am in a small dressing room. The wall is very thin, and I can hear exactly what's been said on the other side of the wall, what managers are using to motivate their players, what players are saying to motivate their teammates, and yeah. the type of language they use around that. And I do hear the comments. Now, yeah. the comment wouldn't be specifically about another player because he is gay or there's rumors about him being gay. It's just yeah. derogatory, homophobic language. And it's an education thing. Yeah. They don't realize that what they're saying can be having such a negative impact on me or yeah. on anyone else in their environment. And yeah. it, it is around education. Do I think the people who are saying it are homophobic? Honestly, at heart, I don't. Mm -hmm. But I do feel that they haven't been educated in what are, is homophobic language, first of all, and what its impact can, can be on others. And I'll just give you a small example. Yeah. Um, because I'm not from uh, a traveler community or the, the, the black community or the sectarian community, mm -hmm. I might not know what is language that offends travelers, that mm -hmm. offends um, people of race or of, 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 of the sectarian community. So mm -hmm. I might not be educated in those. Likewise, yeah. because someone is in a dressing room, uh, you know, and they're, and they're giving their pep talk or their, their team talk and they're using homophobic language, they might not actually know that that's homophobic language. Yeah. So I, I think it is a huge part for the GA to play in the education of its coaches and its players in those four particular key areas. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think like one example actually of where the language was used was actually earlier this year on um, the Sunday game when Colm O'Rourke said, um, this was in context about removing, potentially removing Con from GA football, that this would turn the sport into, and this was a quote, a Namby, Pamby, Pansy Boy game. So David, at this time, this understandably so received a massive backlash from the LGBTQ plus community, including from yourself and Connor Cusick. You know, when you heard that quote coming from Connor Work on national television, this was obviously after you, the dollar and final after the JA had March and Pride. What was going through your head when you kind of heard that, that that had happened? 
it was like being back in the dressing rooms again. It was just mm. that. Well, it was disappointment first of all, and the disappointment kind of went, um, you know. And then I was a little bit angry, and uh, you know, I have to put this in context for people. Colum was one of my teachers in secondary yeah. school in St Patrick's Classical School, Navan. I played football and won a Hogan Cup with him as a mm-hmm. manager. He lives probably, I'd say, four kilometres from my from my home house at home. Mm-hmm. I would know Colum very well. I always referee for him if he needs it for, for challenge matches, and I would meet him on a regular basis um, around Croke Park, and we are quite friendly. And he was a huge advocate of my refereeing career um, yeah. from a very early age. Um, and I had been in St. Patrick's Classical School about three weeks beforehand giving a talk on my journey within the GAA mm-hmm. and then challenging them for their what they call their Smile Week around creating safe environments for students who might be LGBT um, yeah. or anyone. They, they hadn't a clue who, who, who their um, friends or, or, or what the sexuality of their friends may be and not using derogatory comments. And, 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 you know, and I told them the type of language that they shouldn't be using. Yeah. And he had sat through that talk for almost one hour as well. Mm. And it was so disappointing to hear that language on national TV. Um, and I know Connor called it out and I called it out. Um, yeah. And Colm spoke to me through text afterwards and we agreed to disagree. He felt that my um, the term he used had a different meaning from... Um, if you want to look up a dictionary meaning from it, whereas I was using a more modern um, take on, on, on the term. And yeah. again, it's around education. He didn't know that that language was homophobic. I would be yeah. the first to come out and defend the man. The man is not homophobic. Yeah. But that doesn't mean the language he used didn't cause offence to me because mm. it did cause offence to me and it caused offence to, to a lot of people in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and I felt at the time attention needed to be drawn to it because we need to educate those people um, around the language that causes offence to us. And I've already told you why. Um, yeah. Unless we educate them, people just don't know any different. Yeah. And, and I think that's very true. And I think that education piece, because as you said, it, like it's people aren't aware because if you're not in like the circles, you're not aware of the community or aware of the issues or the problems or the experiences that people go through. You don't understand that actually saying X, Y, and Z is offensive and can be offensive to people. And especially terms like, you know, pansy boy, you know, I think because it yeah. is so linked to, you know, more feminine men. And I feel like an association with sport, but I suppose when I, when I heard that myself, I remember thinking like, because I play, obviously I play rugby and I play for an LGBT rugby team. And when I heard someone like that as well, it, it feels like when you're doing work to kind of challenge stereotypes about what um, being a sports person is and that, you know, it, you, you kind of think, I think if you're watching someone like that, if you're a young person at home watching that, who maybe is LGBT from the terms of that, and then you hear that language being used on television, it's just, I, I, I remember thinking, feeling bad, because I think, imagine how crushing that would have been. And I think a lot of the time it is when the language is used and they weren't aware, that's fine. But it's kind of then owning the fact that it could have caused events and that, and, start, and saying, hands up, I made a mistake. I'm sorry, it wasn't meant in that context. Um, so that I think that was something that I think a lot of people would have probably have liked to have seen. But do you think like in the JA, you mentioned what JA needs to do in terms of you know, um, efforts to kind of improve that language. Um, what are kind of some of the steps the JA should take in order to kind of get in terms of building that inclusive environment? 
Well, I think they need to start to look at, um, again, the values upon which the GA are founded. And they espouse mm -hmm. these values in every um, area of, of their game's development. And, and we'll just look at um, four of them because I won't remember them all. I know there's the amateur status, but the ones yeah. that are more pertinent to this con con uh, conversation, respect, yeah. inclusiveness, player welfare, and community identity. And they are yeah. four key values of the GA, four of the six that they, they, they espouse to live up to. And we need the GAA to create educational programs for their coaches and their players yeah. around these four key areas. Um, we don't need to overload coaches with more, um, uh, you know, coaching skills or drills or, you know, this is what you should be doing. They can find that elsewhere. All right. Mm -hmm. And the GAA does not put games as one of its core values. So yeah. if it really at its core has respect and inclusiveness and player welfare and community identity, well, they should be looking at the player as a whole rather than just the skill set of the player. And they should be looking at the coach as a whole. And, you know, rather than just looking at, at these people that they play games for probably yeah. 20 years of their life, they're going to be members of the association for between 50 to 80 years of, the, of their life. I mean, you know it. Once you get, you're in a GA club, you don't leave it. I mean, you're in it for life. Yeah. So it's that holistic development of their, 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 their members and educating them around respect and inclusivity. And yeah. I really feel that during this pandemic, one of the most core values of the GA in the community identity has really come to the fore yeah. um, when we see so many GAA teams doing so much for the elderly or the vulnerable within their parishes and, and their communities. And, and, and it's gone back to its core values. The mm -hmm. games have been removed. The games were never a core value of the GA. They were a byproduct of the GAA. Mm. And it, it, they just need to, to, to relook and reflect on, on what they're doing. And when they talk about games development and coach development and player development, they're the key areas they should be looking at. Leave the managers and the coaches to find their own skill sets and upskill them in that yeah. area, but to educate them better in, 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 in those four uh, specific values. Yeah, and I think that's something that's so important about the JA is that there's such a great sense of community. And the JA is a lot in the backbone of especially rural communities and most communities in even more urban areas. It's such a backbone. It's a great way of bringing people together. And you even seen like with the JA journeys, you said COVID, a lot of community groups coming together, like a lot of people coming together helping students out. Like the JA really, it's a great way of bringing a community together. Even people who don't even play the games themselves would still be very active in the JA. And I think it's a fantastic institution in Ireland and I think those I think it is that education around inclusivity language etc to make it even more open and accepting and it is kind of about that will come with time but I think it's very clear that the GAA, GAA has made so much good effort in recent years I think be taking part in um, the Pride Parade in Dublin in 2019 that was incredible I think everyone noticed that I think everyone even at the parade was very aware, aware, aware the JA was there and I think everyone was like this is fantastic you know for yourself what was how what was the process of how that came to be and for yourself when you were kind of walking with the walking in the parade with them that must have been a fantastic moment for yourself it all happened by chance at the start I was being interviewed for an LGBT panel on Off the Ball with um, Valerie Mulcahy. I'd never met Valerie before. I'd never mm. met Don Lowe Cusack. 
I mean, people think that the GA is a, you know, a small community and everybody knows everybody. I've never <laughs> met these people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Philippa Ryder was there from Sporting Pride as well. And we decided to go for a cup of coffee afterwards in Powers Court Shopping Centre. Mm. And we had a little bit of a chat. And the more I chatted to Valerie, the more I realized how well we actually got on with similar values and, you know, similar outlooks on, on, on LGBT issues. And I kind of said to her, you know, we should really kind of go to the GA. I know John Horan quite well. He's he, a very friendly man. And um, would you come with me um, as, as an LGFA representative? And, you know, we'd sit and have a conversation with him. So I asked John and he said, yeah, he'd put it in the diary and he called me back. And in January, we went in and had a cup of coffee with him in his, in his office. And we gave him a little um, GAA logo, little wooden logo that was painted in rainbow colors. I have one here mm-hmm. in my house. It was given to me as a present. And John still has that on his office, um, on really? the desk in his office. Yeah, it's one of the, the mementos. He would get a lot of mementos from traveling around to clubs and mm-hmm. counties, opening pitches, um, right. and they'd give him all sorts of mementos. That's one that he keeps on his office, uh, on his office desk, and he's quite That's proud amazing. of it. Um, and um, we asked him for a couple of things, which we didn't feel we were going to get anywhere mm-hmm. with. Uh, a message in the match program we thought might be the easiest one or on the screen and he said he'd look into it um the pride flag uh flying in crow park um unfortunately that there was a no-go there's protocols around that and um, we're in the process of trying to challenge those protocols within the ga because it's the last i suppose iconic uh, i don't know uh, uh, iconic place in the city that doesn't fly mm. the, the rainbow flag and then we talked to him about Pride, which we really felt was off the radar altogether. Yeah. And he tells a lovely story now about myself and Valerie leaving his office. And myself and Valerie gave each other a hug when we got up because we were just happy that we had started the process of this conversation. And we walked out, I had my arm around Valerie, kind of saying, that was great, well done. And he told afterwards the story saying that he looked at us leaving his office and we could have been a happily married couple leaving his office arm in arm. But what he realized was we were two people within the GA who were struggling for support. And he made the decision then, a presidential decision, and this is key, and I, I always say this, John made a presidential decision, one of the few presidential decisions ever to be made in the GA. It was not backed by any management committee, any county boards or any provincial boards. Um, he didn't ask for anyone else's backing or permission, and he was the only one that, that stood by it. And in May... 2019 he allowed me announce on the late late show that the yeah. GA was, was going to be involved in pride and that was just such a, a wonderful uh, weekend for me to, to to be on the late late show on a friday night and to turn around on saturday and referee roscommon and mayo in 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 uh, castlebar in the first round of the the, the connor championship and just the outpouring of emotion after that game, Roscommon beat Mayo in Castlebar. Yeah. And I remember coming out of the dressing room afterwards, David, and there was thousands of people outside the ground. And obviously I all thought, thought they were waiting for the Roscommon team to come out to congratulate them. But the number of people that stopped and waited for me to oh, come out, incredible. I had to put my bag down, people coming over, hugging me, kissing me, telling me about their brothers, their sisters, their daughters, their sons, um, their parents, um, who were LGBT and how much this meant to them. And it was just a, a wonderful evening. I couldn't get back to the car. We couldn't get out of the ground. So many people wanted photographs. And um, it was just a lovely occasion. And I remember going home that afternoon and I got a screenshot 
from the Roscommon PRO, um, Hugh Lynn, of a tweet the Roscommon Herald had put out uh, that night, and it, it said something about Roscommon knocking Mayo out of the, the championship, and it, it said afterwards, and thanks to David Goff, they could run the referendum in Roscommon again, and it had passed by a landslide. And I just thought oh, that was lovely brilliant. at, at yeah. the end of it. So that whole weekend was, was just wonderful for me, and of course then June, uh, the end of June, Last year was just such a momentous occasion to walk down um, O'Connell Street in, in um, O'Neill's gear, uh, representing the GAA with our flags and our banners. And what was a very understated, um, I suppose, uh, group um, compared to what we were surrounded by, you know, the multinationals and how much money they pump into them and the, mm. you know, the floats and that. We, we, we were like something you'd see in the St. Patrick's Day Parade walking down through Slane Village. But it was it was still uh, quite significant, and uh, no, but that's I think it will be part of it. It's so significant. I think it's so it's so amazing to see the GA go into something like Pride, and as you say, that presidential decision. That I think that it shows a real. I think it shows a real intention to kind of change, and show, and as you said about the core values, it really shows that thing a sense of inclusivity. Because you, I can only imagine if a young person, as I was saying earlier. Who is struggling sees that and sees the support from the JA from a presidential level for people regardless of their sexuality, gender identity. That's I think that's fantastic and that's so important. That was a very powerful message for the GAA to put out into the world, into Ireland, and to kind of everyone who's seen Pride because it, it was it was really impactful. And I think everybody knew they were there, and as you said, it was small, but people knew they were there. And I think it wasn't about the size of the floats it was the intention behind why the J was there and i thought that was incredibly powerful and it must have been fantastic for yourselves as as you were saying that that was such a momentous occasion and such a fantastic part of what was an incredible year for you and your referee career as well um we spoke a lot about your ja but you mentioned there that you play tennis and you actually competed at the gay games before can you tell people listening what the gay games are and a little bit more about your <laughs> Tennis career, we know all about your ref and your, your career as a J, but your tennis career. Um, I've played tennis probably longer than I've played GAA. So I started ah. playing tennis when I was about seven years of age. The local tennis club to me is Stack Allen, and it's one of the largest, it's the largest rural club in, in, in Leinster. Yeah. Just about two to three hundred meters from my house at home in, in, in Slane. I grew up, I was coached from and the age of seven or eight, right up until, the, until I was 18, and I've never mm-hmm. stopped playing. Um, I'm, I'm 36 now, and I play I play on um, the GLTA World Tour, which is the Gay Lesbian Tennis Alliance. And every weekend around the world, um, no matter what part of the world you're in, Europe, Asia, Australia, or America, there is an event hosted by um, a GLTA group in, in, in different cities mm-hmm. um, around the world. They're a three-day event. Um, yeah. And they're fantastic. They're, they're, they're well supported. I've played all over, all over um, Europe at this stage. Um, I just think um, Manchester, London, um, Nuremberg, Berlin, uh, Frankfurt, Prague. Oh, I mean, the list just goes on and on. I, uh, Paris, um, I love traveling away from, from my weekend tournaments. I play in the yeah. open category, which is the top category. And in 2013, um, I qualified as one of the top eight players in the world to play Whoa. in the GLTA World Championship final. So like um, their ranking events, so you, yeah. you, you're get, you get points um, for um, the, the number of wins you have. And I happened that year to get to the final of a Masters tournament, which was double points. I traveled a lot and racked up a lot of points. 
and um, I was invited to the World Tour Finals. Ended up in uh, a group of four players, um, one Italian, uh, one American, and one German, and I didn't win a single set, um, but it was a fantastic experience and one I thoroughly enjoyed. Unfortunately, after 2013, mm-hmm. my refereeing career took off, and I don't get to travel as much. I played the the Dublin tournament and the May Bank Holiday weekend every year. I never referee that weekend. It's my one weekend off. Yeah. Um, and um, um, I try make at least two other tournaments a year. Usually it's mm-hmm. Dusseldorf in Germany um, the first weekend um, of January because there's no GA usually at, at that time. And I try and get one hurling weekend off during the summer and travel uh, abroad yeah. to play to play. Um, one tournament um, but I just love it and I have so many friends around the world now uh, through sport um, and they come and visit me in Dublin and stay with me and I travel abroad and, and, and stay with them and uh, it's fantastic it's a great way to meet uh, people from from the LGBT community and uh, I know yeah. I'll be off to Brussels in November to play mixed doubles there uh, and I can't Brilliant. wait to get back and, and, and hitting again that's great. So you're decent enough at the tennis, so so. <laughs> I'm handy enough, yeah. You're handy enough now there at tennis. Um, no, I have to say so. In terms, I asked you earlier what was one of like the biggest games in in terms of your reference career. But when you're playing tennis now, what was? Is there any games, matches of tennis in your mind that you think that was? Did you always remember like a really impactful game for yourself? Um. I'd only have to go back recently to the the uh, last um, year's uh, mixed league um, for my club. I was captain of the mm-hmm. club last year. We yep. were in uh, class one, which was the top class, and we had never won the mixed league before. And our club had been chosen from all the clubs in Dublin, of which there's a huge amount of tennis clubs in Dublin, to mm-hmm. host the league finals. So we knew well before we qualified out of our group to the round of 16, the quarters, the semis, the final, that we were hosting the class one finals. So there was a real push um, and excitement around that um, to, to, to play uh, and to, to, to win. And we ended up winning for the first time ever uh, the class one mixed doubles title. Oh, brilliant. It was just a magnificent um, achievement for the club. Um, Last year was a, was a particularly good year for me. I played in, in, in five different Opens around Dublin. Um, I played with five different partners in the, the five doubles events and won four of the titles and lost the final in the fifth. Bloody hell. So, um, I was quite happy with that, and I picked up two singles titles around Dublin last year as well. So I fit all busy... that in around the championship summer. You had a busy 2019. Like, how do you... Like COVID's good for you. At least now you have time to rest. Um, but that's—I tell you, it's great being a teacher. You you need the summer off with all the sports yeah. I play. <laughs> you said it, not me. Um, that's brilliant. That's fantastic. Listen, my last question to you, David, is that for anyone who's listening, maybe who's either in the JA or who, whatever walk of life they're from, who's struggling with their sexuality or gender identity, regardless of their age, what advice could you could you give to those people having come through that journey yourself? I'm always shy to give advice, Dave, because mm. I've realized after coming out and speaking to so many people, everybody's journey is different. Yeah. And sometimes I give advice from a very personal place, mm. and that advice might not suit the audience or the person I, I'm actually speaking to. Yeah. Um, so I, I would always be careful and just say, you know, reflect upon your situation. Yeah. Find someone you trust mm. uh, and talk to them. If you don't have someone 
you trust, reach out to some of the LGBT groups. Yeah. There are so many of them out there. Uh, and that's the one thing that maybe I didn't do. I didn't even know they were there. Um, mm-hmm. I never went looking. Um, and there is so much support and advice there from those people who really know what they're talking about. I went through a very personal journey um, and I know what I'm talking about in relation to my own journey, yeah, but not everybody's course. journey is going to be the same as mine. So go to yeah. the professionals. They are so helpful and so willing and be that belong to or tenny or whatever um, network it is. Um, uh, reach out, find, find the group that you need to speak to and make contact with them because they really are uh, wonderful advocates for the GA community or the, the LGBT community. Yeah. And they help in, in, in so, so many ways. No, definitely. I think that's I think that's very good. I'm I'm quite happy you said that about everyone goes on like their own journey. And I think while I've given advice, my people tend to give advice. A lot of the time it's from their own personal experience and it's everyone's experience is going to be different. While there's sometimes similarities in the sense that everyone's had to come out, everyone's had to come to a realization, everyone's had to go to that that process of coming out. In terms of what that journey is like, is very different for every person. And some people you know, don't when when they do come out, it isn't as positive as some as some other people's coming out experiences. So I think for anyone listening, as um, David said there, you know, if, if you feel that you don't something you can trust or you feel comfortable yet talking to her about this, look at the support groups out there. Look at like likes of belong to the likes of Tene, um, and actually look out there and see what resources can you use to help you through this time. But one thing I my advice is just don't suffer don't suffer in silence you know if you want to explore that go on that journey and go at your own pace and that makes you feel comfortable with um listen david thanks so much for your time it's been great to get the insights from uh, an all-ireland um ja ref get all the insights and it's great to it's great to know that you're impartial anymore if anyone ever comments on your reference skills like i said no no that man said he was impartial as they come <laughs> thanks very much that man, that man comes no if, if, you, if you ever do any bad decisions against Donegal, i may have to drop that and i said ah yeah no i never liked that one at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, so, that's part for the course. <laughs> that's part. That's part of the course. Part of the course of the JA. Uh, everyone. It's part of the course of the JA. But listen, David. Thanks so much, everyone, and thanks so much for you know your advocacy for the LGBT community, especially for within the JA, because I definitely believe it's been, had a massive impact for so many people's lives. I was just displayed in Roscommon, and I said it's, it's touched a lot of people that you probably haven't met or probably haven't come forward. And thank you so much for your continued being the continued spokesperson and your continued support and for all those people. So thanks so much. And thanks so much for your time today. And for people listening, there's more episodes of Dive into Pride available now. There'll be another more episodes of Dive into Pride available now. So definitely listen to those. And if you feel that there's someone that could benefit from hearing what David said today, share this podcast onto them and pass and pass on spread and pass along that good, all that good stuff. So thanks very much and all the best. <laughs>